Satoshi kind of left an unfinished product because in order for it to be finished, like it had to solve the riddle of him. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all doing? How was your weekend? We are enjoying some new freedoms here in the UK. People are getting haircuts. They're sitting outside and having coffees together. I even hugged someone this weekend. I'm not sure if that was illegal or not, but I did it anyway. Amazing stuff. It's good to be getting back to normal. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a really incredible interview with Pete Rizzo, where he talks about the last days of Satoshi Nakamoto. I don't often say this, but many of the podcast episodes I get to make are built on the great work of others. And what Rizzo has done here is really fantastic. So please do make sure you go into the show notes, click on the link and check out the full article he has been working on for a very long time. Okay, before we get into the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And today we're kicking off with Exodus Wallet, who I will be using as my main mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. Now, somebody tweeted me yesterday. They're like, Pete, how are you using Exodus? You talk about using it for your business. How are you actually using it? Well, it's really about record keeping and to keep my accountant happy. She is always whinging at me because I used to send her the Bitcoin transactions and she was like, who's this for? What are you sending it for? So there is this advanced feature in Exodus where I can add a note. I can add some records to transactions. So at the end of the month, when I give her all my transactions, she's no longer whinging at me. She has all the information she needs. I do really like the Exodus wallet. It's really easy to use. I'm always going on about UX. I'm one of those people. I just like easy to use software and Exodus have crushed it. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check out Exodus, please do head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And Exodus is E-X-O-D-U-S. And next up, we have Casa, the very best in Bitcoin security. And I'm coming up to my one year anniversary of being a client of Casa. Now, if you are sat on a decent stack of Bitcoin and you aren't custodying it, or you have it all on a single wallet, it is probably time for you to consider a Casa multi-sig solution. And I know what you are thinking. Do I really need this, Pete? Isn't this going to be a pain to set up? I can do it later. Maybe some of you are thinking, what the hell is a multi-sig wallet? That sounds kind of scary. I know, I had all the same questions, but honestly, it could not be easier to set up. And you have so much peace of mind when you've got this solution in place. Now, a multi-sig wallet allows you to custody your Bitcoin but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you distribute into different locations, which is protecting you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you've got questions and you're like, Pete, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, you can email me, you can DM me, I will answer your questions because I love the product. Also, keep an eye out on my Twitter. I'm going to be running a competition with Casa to give away a package of one of their solutions. So keep an eye out for that. Now there is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and you can find out more at keys.casa. That is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And next up we have sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming. Why? Why Pete? Why are they the best? Because they accept Bitcoin of course. Now I've got to know this company very well. I know they love Bitcoin. They want to support Bitcoin. We also have a competition coming soon. Some of you know, they're going to be giving away a Lambo. We were talking about it last week. We're getting the final details in place. There is going to be another sweet Bitcoin edge to this competition, which I know some of you are going to love. 
They do support Bitcoin. They are the front of shirt sponsor for Southampton. They are the betting partner for Arsenal. Sportsbet.io loves Bitcoin. And if you are interested in checking them out, they have every market you could possibly be interested in. Yes, they cover football, tennis, American sports, motorsports, even esports. And if you put out a tasty wager on Spurs losing the cup final this weekend, you would have come good. Of course you would have come good if Spurs, right? We knew they were going to lose. Also, for new customers, they do have a range of promotions available. And if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, so on to the show today. And yes, this is a very, very cool episode. I have one of my favorite journalists in Bitcoin on, Pete Rizzo. And we're going to be talking about the last days of Satoshi. Now, it's 10 years, almost to the day, that Satoshi wrote one of his last known messages, which was to Mike Hearn, saying that he had moved on to other things and that Bitcoin was in good hands. He left the project in the hands of Gavin Andreessen and hasn't really been heard of since. Now, for the 10th anniversary of Satoshi leaving Bitcoin, Pete has written an incredible article looking through some of Satoshi's final conversations and blog posts and how he handled the handover of the power to Gavin and other contributors. As soon as I heard Pete was writing this, I asked him to come on and go through everything he'd learned with me. And it's a very, very cool conversation. Love this. Love this Bitcoin history stuff. Pete's article is definitely worth reading. It's being dropped in conjunction with this episode. So make sure you go to the show notes and go and read it and support Pete. Share it out on Twitter, etc., etc. Anyway, I know you're going to love this. But if you do have any questions or feedback, you can reach out to me. You know that. My email address is hello at what Bitcoin did. Com. And just before I go, I do want to give a mention because it's coming up soon. Bitcoin 2021 conference. I will be emceeing again. So I'm very excited to get out of lockdown and see you all in Miami. If you haven't bought tickets yet, please head over to b.tc slash conference. And if you use the promo code WBD, you can get 10% off your tickets. All right, on to the show. I hope you enjoy it and I look forward to your feedback. Rizzo, how you doing, man? Good. Is this the show? Or have we entered the show mode? This is the show. <laughs> We've entered Excellent. show mode. Right, this is first time using Zencaster video. So if something goes wrong, then you're uh, you're my guinea pig. Okay, you can just replace me with a uh, you know a photo not found. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, man, listen. Look, you've been on the show since, since what 2019. We did it in uh, CoinDesk office, mm-hmm. New York yep. City. Yeah, uh, it was Consensus uh, 2019. The depths of the mm-hmm. bear. The depths of the bear. We hung out in Vegas. Was it 2020 February before the shit lockdown? Mm-hmm. Unconfiscatable. I remember yeah. that was just as COVID uh, leaped the ocean into Italy. People were, people yeah. were starting to realize that this was going to go global. So, and, and there it did. A watershed anyway, moment. Good see you, yeah, good to see you, man. Moment. Appreciate it. Well, listen, look, uh, you've been doing some good, interesting work on the side. Some interesting writing work. Uh, nice, man. And uh, when you t- told me you were doing this, uh, obviously I was like, please come on my show. Can we talk through it? I, basically, I just want to uh, hear the story. But before we get into the details of this, because we're, I mean, people all know from the show title mm. uh, that it's the last days of Satoshi recovering. But like, what's the deal here? How come you've been doing this work? Why have you been doing these deep research pieces? Are you making a book? Are you going to make a film? Tell me what you're doing. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, I guess I'll just, uh, you know, start in with, uh, you know, the article that I'm releasing. Uh, it's called The Last Days of Satoshi. It's basically uh, marks the 10th anniversary of Satoshi Nakamoto's disappearance from the Bitcoin product, uh, project. So, you know, a uh, special uh, time, I think. You know, this is 10 years that Bitcoin has survived without a clear leader. You know, so uh, something that I always just found interesting, uh, right? I, I don't know, I guess to your question of what I've been doing, um, <laughs> you know, uh, people may know me right now. I'm uh, editor at, at Bitcoin Magazine, and of course, editor at Large at Kraken. Uh, before that, my time, you know, uh, in the media at Coindesk, uh, I feel like I've always been trying to understand Bitcoin um, and been in the process of understanding Bitcoin. And I've never stopped that, right? I've been in the industry for eight plus years, and I feel like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. always in the process of wanting to understand Bitcoin better. And, you know, really, I think, um, you know, my transition from people might know me as a journalist to now I'm sort of branding myself as a historian is more about, you know, my time preference for things changed, right? I kind of got done with the sort of media saturation of just being in the loop of the news cycle and, you know, realized just after many years of doing that, that, you know, there was just fundamental things that I didn't understand about what had happened with Bitcoin. And I think what really clicked for me is that, you know, if Bitcoin is an invention, if Bitcoin is an innovation, if they're going to be talking about this in a thousand years, like what happened with Bitcoin, like who made it, then we still live in a time period right now where Bitcoin can be understood, like where it's capable of being uh, understood and known. We can we can get answers to some of these questions. So I think that was a switch for me when I realized that, uh, you know, after the 2017 bubble, when I, I think we had seen, you know, the second Bitcoin cycle, where I really understood that Bitcoin was going to be a cyclical economy, I really started to understand this wasn't theoretical, this was happening, it was interacting with the real world, it was only going to continue. Uh, and really, that just changed the direction of my work. And, uh, you know, really, I started to go back to the beginning. And I was like, okay, well, I've been here, I've seen things, uh, what don't I know? And I have to go find those answers, because I don't know who else is going to do that at this point, right? I was like, I know most of these things. Uh, but I don't know all of it, right? Uh, and for me, I think, you know, I just started diving into researching again and, uh, you know, for the fun of it though, right? Like I think with media, you can get, you know, I've got to put out the next article. I've got to put out the next thing. Uh, this guy's hot. This project's hot. I got to talk about the Coinbase IPO, the, the whatever, the Michael Saylor said this or that. Um, it was really just stripping out all of that. And it was just like, okay, what do I want to know about Bitcoin? And for me, like one of the biggest, uh, most interesting things is like this inherent contradiction at the heart of Bitcoin where you have a single person invented the decent- uh, decentralized money. You know, that's what it appears like, right? Satoshi was the lead developer. He was the maintainer of the website. He was the admin of the forum. Definitely right? one person. <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, the article doesn't get into that. Uh, you know, we know that he was, uh, you know, there was an uh, online profile that people interacted with and that they assumed was Satoshi and corresponded uh, as if he was Satoshi. So, uh, you know, the article, I definitely think, you know, takes the standpoint of, okay, uh, you know, we know that there is this legacy of Satoshi posts, right? Again, asterisk, we can never know that this is Satoshi. We can never know this is one person. Uh, but let's dig into that. Like, what actually was his time like as leader of the Bitcoin project? Like, people interacted with him. They had real experiences with him. He was the leader uh, of this thing. And really, I think for me, it was just, um, you know, we've grown beyond that. We we don't need, uh, you know, maybe that type of leadership anymore, but we had it. And, and for me, it was about going back to the beginning and, and really taking a look and saying, okay, how did Satoshi run the Bitcoin project? What do we know? What uh, are we still confused about? And the article really traces everything from, you know, the launch of the white paper, like right up to the end of his disappearance uh, of just being, this is a full one article, total picture of what Satoshi's time in Bitcoin was like. And before we go into the detail of it, did anything really stand out for you when you were researching anything you find out that really surprised you? You thought, Jesus, I didn't know this. 
I didn't yeah. expect to find this out. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I I think that uh, for me, the biggest one was that I'm less convinced that Satoshi could have ever stayed. Like we have this like mental image in our mind that uh, Satoshi chose to leave, or was somehow some like a benevolent decision on his part. Uh, looking back through the archives and like really digging and spending a lot of time with what happened in 2010 and 2009, I really just think that. In many ways, the community outgrew him. They no longer needed Satoshi. Like if you uh, look and follow the forums, uh, by the end, by late 2010, um, you have a few things that happen. And, and one of the notable things is that people become outright hostile to Satoshi. Uh, they become more comfortable dissociating from him. You have people in these IRC chats. They're talking about, oh, is he a woman? Uh, is he a yakuza guy? They're drawing pictures of him. They're talking about, you know. Uh, uh, if he was a woman, they would claim him as their as their girlfriend. They're like fighting over this kind of stuff. So they just have this mental break where even in Satoshi's like own time where he was like a, a actual person like managing this project, uh, he became so sort of mythological that that people just uh, you know became very abstract. Like the article starts with you know people sort of discussing like all their theories about who he is and how mysterious he is, and, and in reality, he's still the person pushing updates to the code. Um, so I think that, you know, really one, they, they really dissociate from him like towards the end. And I think two, uh, there's kind of this wave of FUD that happens at the end of 2010. You have the first, you know, people who are coming to the Bitcoin project and Bitcoin's successful now. It's like almost a dollar. It's like a million dollar project. Uh, and they're casting doubt on it. They're like, oh, you have this leader and he could just change anything. And, you know, you have these, uh, I call this like part of the article. It's like the birth of FUD. It's really like, this is the first FUD. Like there was no FUD before. <laughs> like, you know, if you're a Bitcoin user, you're used to FUD, like people making stuff up uh, to challenge, you know, your insight and your understanding of Bitcoin. That had literally never happened before. Uh, and their response was, you know, they were just like, okay, well, if Satoshi does something bad, we're going to fork. Uh, and everybody from like, you know, your average pleb user to Gavin Andreessen, who by that point was Satoshi's right hand, as, as, essentially, uh, you know, was like, look, if Satoshi goes rogue, we're going to fork. And I think, you know, in actualizing this message, you know, really what you see, I think, is that I don't really see how Satoshi could have stayed. I think the community just outgrew him. They outgrew a need for him. And in many ways, there was just too much going on. Like, I mean, how could Satoshi solve all these like existential questions that people were having, right? People were auditing the code for the first time. They were like, oh, can we have multiple blockchains? Can we have multiple cryptocurrencies? Dear Satoshi, oh my God, Satoshi, what should we do? Can we do multiple blockchains? Uh, you know, uh, should we have, should this software be decimals? Uh, should, uh, you know, uh, do I have rights as a user to like, you know, uh, not run the code that you uh, want to write? Uh, you know, there's just all these existential questions that kind of pour out at the end of 2010. And I think, you know, for me, I wanted to make that story like real and impactful for people to, to like, yeah, I sort of envision the story as like, it, it, I think if it's effective, it'll put you in the position of like, okay, this is what Satoshi went through like for the course of launching Bitcoin. And I think by the end, you know, I just don't think he could have stayed around. Like there's no scenario in which Satoshi had continued. Uh, and I think for me, that's a big realization because I think it says a lot about Bitcoin as a technology uh, that it began to erode and in many ways, like, you know, uh, the founder leaving it wasn't really even necessarily his own choice. So do you feel like he felt forced out or do you feel like he felt uh, like a noble desire to like uh, to leave or do you think he was just had too much of the bullshit? It's like, this is too stressful. You guys figure it out. D do you have any kind of clue on that? Yeah, I think really what you can tell is just, uh, you know, so one of the things that I really did with this article, it took me like six months to write and I really tried to like spend time with like the different wow. phases of, uh, you know, the Bitcoin. Like, like proper forums. journalism. 
Well, hey, you know, I mean, when your time preference goes this low, right, you just got to sit down. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, I looked at the different phases and one of the things you can look at is just anecdotally, like number of users who are coming in, the volume of posts, like, you know, the, the type of posts. And I think like, I would break it down to, I think essentially Satoshi kind of goes through four phases. Like if, if we think about his time within Bitcoin and the first one is just like, there's nothing, right? 2009 is like, you know, I looked at the whole transaction history of Bitcoin in 2009. There's like 200 transactions, non-mining transactions, right? So there's like nothing. There's like nobody doing anything. Uh, there was whole, like if you actually download the thing, it's like there's weeks, like actual weeks where you'll just see there's no transactions running on Bitcoin. Uh, so there's just nothing happening. Like no one cares. Uh, and what's funny to me about that is there's an interesting part of the Bitcoin.org website that I found where it's Satoshi kind of talking about the Byzantine generals problem. I had always thought that like other people had like, were like, oh, he had solved that. But like, no, he knew he solved that. Uh, and I just think like the first period of Bitcoin is weird because like you're Satoshi, you're this guy, like you know that you've created decentralized money. You know you've created the uh, a money free from government control finally. But like nobody cares. Like nobody, nobody, uh, it's like that meme like, you know, with the Jurassic Park guy where he's like, see, nobody cares, right? So you just think of like Satoshi being in that seat and like you've invented this this thing. It's, an, it's a human invention. Like maybe like it's like fire, flight and like Bitcoin, like when when all is said and done in humanity, like, but just nobody gives a shit. Uh, and he actually has to like do stuff to get people to care about Bitcoin. So like I think the end of that first phase is he really like he launches the Bitcoin forums. And you might think like as like that being kind of an afterthought, like that might not be one of the most important things. So she did Satoshi did, but I really think it was huge actually because he built a community for people to talk about Bitcoin. And then what you find is as people got together, they like built exchanges, they started trading, like they started and Bitcoin like had a price. Like I think the end of that first period is like. People get together and they price Bitcoin, and um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's. It, but it is weird to think that Satoshi had to actively like court interest in Bitcoin, right? And I think that to me that was another realization that I thought was interesting. Is like, oh no, he was a guy who had to. He had to go out to us. He had to, uh, you know, find ways to get people interested. And I never really pictured Satoshi in that way as like being like an innovator, like somebody who launched something who had to like. Uh, in some way, try to make it appeal to people. Um, so I think that was that was interesting. And of course, the other phases are, you know, I think there's kind of like an innocent period where people are, oh, Satoshi, like he knows everything, he knows best. Uh, they're very reverential of him. Uh, there's a period uh, after what happens, like there's a pretty uh, horrible exploit of the protocol. There's like uh, billions of bitcoins that are printed. Uh, there's there's a bug called the value overflow exploit. 180 billion bitcoins mm-hmm. are printed. I think that sets off alarm bells with Satoshi, you really see his like demeanor changes, his activity changes, like he goes into like, no, I need to ensure Bitcoin at all costs kind of mode. Uh, and then at the end, you get this really dissonant period where Satoshi's kind of doing all this stuff to try to shore up Bitcoin. And people are like, well, why is he doing that? Why does he have the authority to do that? Uh, why isn't he telling us these things? And this sort of starts this questioning period. And I think when that really intensifies, like at the end, uh, Satoshi's not talking to us. We don't know. What should we do? Like, uh, you know, I don't know. You can kind of think about it. It's like, you know, this is the natural... You would probably expect this, right? This is the phases of which a a project would become leaderless. Um, But I guess like to your original question, yeah, I think it it was phases. And I think by the end, like it just became very overwhelming. It's like, how could you possibly satisfy the needs or demands of like that many people who, you know, think about it even today, like, you know, Bitcoin has, has problems with that. But I mean, imagine back then, right? Like I think people, they just saw him as this like figure who could solve everything. And I, I think for him at some point, 
you know, uh, once once it seems like he had locked down the code, he had done enough to secure it. I get this feeling that towards the end, it was like, you know, he felt like he had done enough, and that was it, right? He was like, I put the scotch tape on it, like this boat's gonna go, <laughs> and like and like I'm out, and then he just le- leaped over the side, right? So I think it was, uh, I think it was virtuous in that way, right? I think I think there's a he knows at some point that the code is capable of being attacked. He wakes up to that. He. I, I write in there. It's like you know. At some points, it's like he's boarding for a storm. It's like he he gets the house ready and then he dips out. So I think he did what he could do, and I think he knew that he had a finite window to do it. And I think, uh, but I think he knew that it was sort of coming where you know people weren't going to, um, you know, they just didn't need his authority anymore. I and mean, in some places, his authority just wasn't helpful, right? If that makes sense. Uh, yeah. How, how good was he at controlling his own emotions and? Like his expression of his feeling, was he quite in control, mm. or did any way in his writings did he let slip kind of his own kind of like whether there, he was feeling any pressure, or was he always matter of fact about the project yeah. itself? So Satoshi is like very subdued, right? He like you know all we have of really his writings are the Bitcoin talk forums, and certainly I wasn't able to add anything new there uh, to to that. Uh, but you know he's very taciturn. He he just you know if he he says something, he's very technical. Like if there's an answer that he wants to give, he will give it. Uh, and he doesn't really elaborate. He doesn't tell jokes. He doesn't tell side stories. Like there's nothing. There's very little of that. One incident that I found that was really telling, though, uh, was really sort of towards the top of 2010. You had this period where it's like Bitcoin's kind of like getting mentioned a little bit in the news, and uh, the users like uh, you know it's really building, right? Because we what we know is that we can we can get a proxy for how many users there were because the Bitcoin forums like they kept a tab on how many like new user accounts were created. Uh, so you can kind of get a feel like you know this would have been Bitcoin had gone from like a handful of people like 20 to 30 people at the top of 2010 to really like a thousand people and i think he really gets caught up in this excitement right you have people who are coming who are big like bigger contributors now like gavin andreessen had just debuted the faucet and the faucet's like this really innovative thing where people can just get free bitcoin it's like an actual application that somebody builds on bitcoin um and i think like towards that summer Bring it back <laughs> yeah well let laszlo there's pizza day right people are spending bitcoin so i think in like june of 2010 oh. he definitely gets caught up in the excitement so there's one incident that i found where he actually moves to take bitcoin out of beta which is actually really strange if you think about it because bitcoin is still in beta today technically uh, the code is still considered a beta software the developers I think maintain that distinction because they want people to feel like Bitcoin is experimental and that you know it's not a production software. But Satoshi considered and did announce that he was going to take it out of beta, uh, and then he he actually uh, counteracted that decision. But his decision to take it out of beta inspired people to go basically try to market this. So basically, this whole thread kind of started where people were like, "Oh, let's advertise on Facebook. Let's list on Slashdot. Let's get on Google. Let's." blow Bitcoin up. And they do. They get Bitcoin listed on Slashdot, which was like a huge news aggregator. Uh, It was like comparable to something like Dig or like Mm -hmm. Reddit today. Uh, And it just blows up and it gets overwhelmed, right? So like what happens is, uh, and you look at the statistics, um, the price goes up from like pennies to like 10 cents, like the mining power quadruples. There's one guy, and then there's a little anecdote story in here where uh, he sells like 90,000 Bitcoin on an exchange for a thousand bucks. And he like brags about how he's like taking down Bitcoin exchanges. Uh, and really what I wanted to add was like the flavor of that time period. Because I think when we look back at the history of Bitcoin, it like just feels like this black box, right? But like, you know, we can find uh-huh. things like these people did things. And this was like a vibrant time like where things happened, right? So I, I, I don't know. I just thought that that was an interesting like uh, anecdote where it's like, and I think this kind of made me, I think a lot of people like to talk about the WikiLeaks thing as being so, like a moment where Satoshi, uh, you know, 
didn't want the project to blow up. And I think like you know everything has prior context. And I think uh, the slash dot uh, thing at the beginning of 2010 is interesting because like he gets caught up. He decides to do something. It causes a reaction, and that reaction kind of causes this wave of things to like stress the network. Uh, and another side effect of that is you know in the publicity that Bitcoin did get, uh, what you see is that. You know, people start reporting bugs to him. They start finding exploits, and I think really what that culminates with is the you know exploitation of the Bitcoin monetary policy, where someone figures out a way to break it, uh, and they have to roll back the blockchain. But I think you know, Bitcoin's kind of like this weird box where it's like everything ev- for every action, there's a reaction, and then everything adds up, right? So um, I think with this story, it's like you start to get a sense of like, okay, where does this go back to like the very beginning, and how do these things kind of add up together? Um, and I just saw that as an interesting moment where Satoshi, he like got over his skis a little bit and he realized that and then he had to pay for that mistake. And the, and, and the mistake was bad. Like the mistake was like Bitcoin's monetary policy was compromised. The, there was a chain split of like 53 blocks where there was two competing blockchains. Uh, there's one thing that I had to cut that was kind of funny, but there's this anecdote of this guy who like, uh, he was so worried about Bitcoin, he like took over all the computers' houses, like kicked his wife off his computer so he could like run, uh, he could run this other chain and like make sure that Bitcoin got back on like a single blockchain. But you know, look, Legend. this was real for people, right? Like, um, mm. and we, and that's like I think what I wanted to get across the article is like the Satoshi days, like you know, they're not this black box like where nothing happens, like. The people were around. It was a community that was larger than Satoshi. And it wasn't just Satoshi and Gavin, right? The, the piece really deals also with the transition between Satoshi and Gavin Andreessen, uh, who, of course, was you know viewed as Satoshi's successor and, and really did take control of the project after, after Satoshi left. Uh, and really, for me, that was the inspiration. I really wanted to understand like how those two individuals, you know, how they passed uh, power between each other. Because I think you were talking about before, like, am I writing a book? Am I doing whatever? I think... Uh, I don't know, I want to understand Bitcoin. And I think to me, it sort of all goes back to like, what, it, what was that original transition of power uh, between Satoshi and the next guy? Uh, because, you know, that was an event that, you know, really is only going to happen once in Bitcoin. It's highly unique. And I don't know, there's all this mythology and misinformation about it. And I really wanted to just clean slate that. Uh, and the cool thing about the article is, look, it's all cited. So there's, you know, 100 plus citations here. If you think that I'm wrong about anything, you can dig into the citations, you can read the things, and you can kind of, you know, I like to think of the article as sort of a roadmap to this world of early Bitcoin where if you want to fork off and explore, you can. But when he, uh, after he announced his departure, what was the reactions like? Was it a mixture of, you know, good luck, thank you? Or so he never like, announces his departure. Oh, I thought he did. Yeah, he never announces his departure. Uh, so, no. Uh, so, what's interesting is that in classic Satoshi fashion, something else that I found that I don't think a lot of people know is that he actually, uh, so December 13th is kind of like the when he releases his last software update. Um, and he actually, at that point, he goes into the Bitcoin code and he changes the copyright statement to read Satoshi Nakamoto to Bitcoin developers. And I sort of view that as like, that's his... You know, in this classic Satoshi fashion of like everything is, you know, cryptographic, his OPSEC is still pristine. We have his like formal resignation like in the code. And I thought that was super cool, uh, you know, to find that moment. Uh, but he continues to be active, right? So this is where it gets pretty unclear. And I, I was able to get some new emails from Gavin Andreessen to understand a little bit about how this transition happens. But effectively, Satoshi just absconds and he's pushing other people to become more active. And this is where I think, like, you know, we don't clearly know, but at some point, like, Gavin basically publishes a blog post in which he says that he has Satoshi's blessing to take over the project. 
it appears that like they exchange emails after where it's clear that like that seems to have been a legitimate attestment. Like uh, like Satoshi does seem to still be actively involved with Bitcoin and working with Gavin there after that transition. Uh, so that is new. Like those emails that Gavin provided are are new, and that would indicate that Satoshi was pretty active with Bitcoin and Gavin behind the scenes, like sort of helping that along. Right. Okay. But it becomes clear at one point. I thought he left a message saying, "I'm I'm going on. I'm going to work on other things." Yeah. So that's in April. So the timeline really here breaks down as like he's effectively, you know, trying to give up control towards okay. the end of 2010. Uh, it seems like he's kind of messaging like Sirius and messaging Gavin and messaging like the Blaslo, the people who are involved. Um, you know, and it really is a few a few events. So one one he he changes the software. Uh, to be all open to all Bitcoin developers. He changes the copyright. Uh, he seems like he had to have like engaged in private emails to try to get people to become more involved. There's some anecdotal evidence of that. Uh, and then there's the Bitcoin.org website. So he actually takes his name off that website and he lists the names of other contributors. Um, I think the interesting thing, though, is if you look at the other contributors he named, there really just isn't anybody else who could have taken that role other than Gavin. It's It's kind of like a weird scenario where it's like, I do put a lot of stake in the people who say, yes, any user could have taken control of Bitcoin at that point, and anyone could have stepped up, and Gavin did step up. Uh, and I and that was something I spent a lot of time trying to like scrutinize and understand and come at. And I do think there were a lot of people with technical development skills at the time. Um, because you know what you have to understand is that in the early days of Bitcoin, everything was a lot more egalitarian. Like there wasn't this distinction, like minor. Like developers today are like this class of Bitcoiners, right? Like to be a Bitcoin developer, you have to be someone of immense technical expertise. That really wasn't the case in 2010. People were trading their own patches. Like so, you had miners who were like making their own custom versions of the code because Satoshi really wasn't updating the mining code. So uh, and he wasn't really able. You couldn't get a hold of him. So people would just like make their own softwares and you'd trade it with somebody else. And if his mining software is better than yours, you'd take it from him and you'd run it. Uh, so it was just a lot flatter, right? There are no miners back then. There are no these big like monolithic mining pools. There are no developers like who are sitting there thinking all day about what should be done with the protocol. There's just none of this, right? It's just a bunch of people in an open source community uh, running code. Uh, so it is it is flatter in that sense. And uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, I think it really takes a long time to just understand how different that is. Because we become so used to the way things are in Bitcoin today, it's hard to look back at that period and really see it for what it was. There's a nice passage, I think, where I go into where, you know, I, and I actually reached out to... Uh, so in the source forge code, you you can see that Satoshi thanks a number of people for contributions. I was able to reach out to a number of those people. I won't name them specifically, but they were able to provide some anecdotal, uh, you know, information about what it was like to work with him and and you know what they would say that he was very down to earth. He was approachable. He was like always open to be ma- making fixes. There was nothing mysterious about Satoshi. There was one guy who shared a story where it's like he got on a plane. He like was looking at Bitcoin. He translated the website. He sent it to Satoshi. Satoshi said thanks. And like that's how people interacted with him. <laughs> you know, he was just another guy. Right. But there becomes a realization that he is out of the project and that Gavin has taken over. And so I have kind of got two questions. When people realize Satoshi's out, uh, what are, I'm assuming a, mm. a mixture. There will be people who were grateful, maybe thanking him, not knowing if he's going to read the replies. There are people who who probably claiming this is good for the project. People maybe think it's bad. And I also imagine some people like Gavin. Uh, perhaps had a lot of people worried that he was just a replacement and it was like cutting the head off the Hydra. Did that happen? Yeah, not really. So one of the interesting things is that um, 
you know, Bitcoin is an interesting system because I think, you know, you always wonder like who the participants, mm. like how many participants like know the history in the system at any given time. And I think towards 2011, the top of 2011, Bitcoin is really taking off, right? And, and what that means is that effectively the number of people in Bitcoin are, is like going up exponentially, right? So if you maybe have, you know, when Satoshi was still there, there was maybe a few thousand people who were in the project. By then it's like in right. the tens of thousands, right? So when you really get into like April of 2011, Bitcoin's over a dollar, and this is like a watershed moment again, where it's like you know uh, there had never been a digital currency that was worth more than the U.S. dollar. That was that was a big deal to people. Uh, so I think that again, it was a very exciting time for Bitcoin. I, I think the reactions to him leaving. So first, you have I, I don't think it was clear to people that he was really gone. So if you look at the IRC logs, there's people like in January, like they're like, is he on vacation? Like does, there were like people were like, hey, do you know that does Satoshi just like usually take a long time around the holidays to come back? Uh, and then there's some statements from Gavin and then Mike Hearn and a few others like of like, oh, Satoshi said this or that. And that kind of continues through February and March. And then I think it really isn't until April uh, where, you know, April 26th is the last known message that we have from Satoshi. And what I wanted to kind of, you know, peg this article around is, is that kind of 10th anniversary. Uh, you see people sort of, you know, different reactions. I think some people, this one guy named Kiba, he has this post called Satoshi Disappear Day where he's like, you know, we should always have honor this day where, where our leader disappeared to kind of thank him. You have other people who are like, okay, well, you know, he's gone and thanks, but we're moving forward. But I think that for a lot of people, I think they saw Satoshi as someone who was like slinking away as the as the project was becoming more popular. And I think feelings towards him were a little bit more negative at the time. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't find anything in the text that like really substantiates this, but I find myself, if you really think like put yourself in that position, like you're with this project, like this project is taking off and your leader is this mysterious guy who doesn't want to like really take, go to bat for the project at all. He's not really around. He's not doing interviews. He's not helping move this thing forward. And then comes along Gavin, who's like, you know, Gavin Andreessen is doing all the interviews. And he not only that, he's willing to go to the CIA. He's willing to go to the authorities. And he's actually willing to represent Bitcoin to those people, to the most dangerous people in the world who like, yeah, they might actually kill him like if he does that. And I think that really resonated with people. So I don't think it was quite as cut and dry as like people saw Satoshi like leaving his authority and Gavin taking it. I actually think the users were in control and I think the users recognized and and sort of wanted what Gavin provided. They wanted someone who was going to, you know, again, like this is an exciting time. Like Bitcoin is happening for these people who have spent years on this weird forum and Gavin's willing to go there. And I think that mattered to people. Uh, and I think that transition of leadership was natural in that way. I don't think that, you know, that means that thereafter, Gavin always did the best things. He made a lot of mistakes. But I think at that time, if you had to choose between those two people, is it really so hard to understand like why people gravitated towards Gavin? Well, no. I, I, you know, if these people are excited about the price. I mean, one of the things about Bitcoin is most people, a lot of people get very excited by the price. Uh, as, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people get excited by the price. But one of the clear indications from Satoshi that, I mean, we assume, we assume he's never monetized his creation. We make a lot of assumptions about that. Um, I mean, he certainly could be the one of the wealthiest people in the world. Um, so, whereas a lot of other people, they kind of do want that. They want it monetized. They want the success. They want the sailors of this world. They want Jack Dorsey's. So, I can see why they could look to Gavin for that. But did, 
Did Gavin assume the same role as Satoshi? Did people look to him as a leader to make decisions in the same way as Satoshi? Or during that transition, did they see him having a different kind of role and that decision-making and governance was more decentralized? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think, to me, one of the reasons why I've, I spend a lot of time with this period is like governance in Bitcoin is one, like, one of the most fascinating things mm. to me because I think, you know, if you look at most open source projects, they're run by benevolent dictators. And I think Satoshi was a benevolent dictator. I mean, he straight up made changes to the code without consulting anybody or publishing the code for other people to look at. Full stop. So, like, you know, he might have done that with good intentions, but he still did it. That's the way he behaved. Mm. And that was one of the things I was really trying uh, you know, to take a look at. Uh, you know, one of the funny things is like if you look at the block size that he put in, he doesn't publish that as part of an update. He doesn't let anyone know he did it. He just sticks it in the code, sort of unannounced. He like announces a new a new update, and everybody updated to this block size. Uh, so you know, you you do have this thing where you know Satoshi does behave a certain way, and he behaves in a way that is fundamentally at odds with the way Bitcoin development is done today. And say whatever you will about that. We may have made the best decisions. We may have the best version of Bitcoin development today. I think we do. But it is, still remains a fact that Satoshi ran the project as an open source project maintainer. He made decisions carte blanche. Like, right, there was another uh, instance in this that's called out where, you know, people were talking about fees being too high uh, or, uh, you know, and he, uh, they wanted to like lower the threshold. Uh, he just does it, right? Nobody responds to his post for a couple weeks, so he just makes the change that he wants to make and he moves on. So I think with Gavin, it's interesting because you have to assume that he's a well-intentioned human being who is trying to run this project that somebody else started. And all he has to go on are the social cues of how this other person behaved. And he, all he has is to go by is like what the norms were established by that individual. Um, or not, right? Some people, I think, were, were a little bit more willing to break uh, from that. I think one of the early th text posts I found that was interesting to me was like Vladimir Vondolon, uh, who's the current uh, Bitcoin Core maintainer, was one of the first ones to kind of, you know, ring the bell of being like, hey, like, developers can still make this project centralized. Like, we can be the single point of failure here. And like, uh, there's a nice quote that he has where he's like, otherwise we should call uh, Mr. Satoshi dear leader, right? Where he's making this assumption that like, you can actually, uh, that the way Bitcoin is designed, the developers could act in such a way. And, you know, we see this on blockchains like Ethereum, right? Where essentially the developers are dictators. And if, you know, you don't want to make their update, uh, they're going to fork you off the chain and your money, is, your money is now worthless because of the decisions that they've made. So I think that, you know, I don't know. I, I tend to be more sympathetic to Gavin. I think he was saddled with a lot. I think he made some mistakes, but I think uh, you know ultimately, you know, uh, he all he had to go by was what uh, you know Satoshi did and like what he thought users wanted. Um, and ultimately, I think one of the things that I wanted to bring out in the article is that Satoshi is contradictory in a lot of ways. I don't think you know. Uh, we I think we've come to believe that there's. You know, a certain Satoshi that's you know always had in Mythical mind God. that uh, you know this was going to you know fight central. But yeah, exactly right. Like you know, we and I think we quote a lot of his quotes now, where it's like we quote his quotes about central banking, but there are quotes about micropayments, and then we quote his quotes about uh, you know being uh, gold 2.0, but we don't quote his things about Bitcoin needing to have a stable uh, value, or else it wouldn't be used as currency. So I, th I think there is like, and what I wanted to present here a little bit was getting back to like that more multifaceted Satoshi. Like I mean, by all means. Like uh, I think you could represent how Satoshi, Satoshi, however you want. Certainly, a lot of people do. Um, but you know, this gets us to like that. Satoshi is a complicated figure. I don't think we can look to him to all the answers. And I think again, we have ten years now to look back and say like, how have we done without the le uh, leader? I think we've done pretty well, right? Uh, but we get to choose that, right? And we get to do it by our own standards. And 
and that George Washington way, like you know, Satoshi walked away, right? Uh, and 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 that's great, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that uh, I'm not sure what your original question was. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, it was more about the how the governance changed. No, you know, did people look to Gaving to make decisions the same way they looked at Satoshi, or did things change a bit? Did did it become a more decentralized form of governance and decision making, or did Gavin just go ahead and do shit? Oh yeah, I think my point is that there just was no governance. Yeah. Like back, the idea of governance was was still forming, and I think that's one of the things the article gets at is that Bitcoin governance is something that is like really interpreted in a lot of ways. And um, another figure who gets some airtime in this article, who I think is like among the more fascinating Bitcoin's history, is Michael Markart. You might know him as Thamos. He's the moderator of the yeah. Bitcoin forums. Uh, today, and I think he really sort of emerges to me as the first person who's able to really vocalize this idea of, you know, uh, Bitcoin is the code that you choose to run, and nobody should dictate to you what Bitcoin is. He doesn't really say it in in, in so much terms, but he does it in actions. There's an interesting kind of event towards the end of 2010, you know, as Satoshi is kind of under a lot of stress and there's all these things going on where, you know, he he actually tries to like get people together to launch a fork that goes against something that Satoshi wants. Um, so essentially, basically in, in, in uh, Satoshi, you know, again, trying to make the best security decisions like kind of before he leaves, he just basically shuts off all these advanced transactions that he made. So he basically put hundreds of different transaction types in the code and he shuts most of them off except for a couple ones that effectively are whitelisted. And, you know, uh, Thamos and some other miners get together and he's like, we're going to run another version of the software. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, there's a minor kind of conflict there. But it's interesting because today I think most developers would agree that Thamos like, was correct and that the actions that Satoshi took, I'm not sure if they would have agreed with. Uh, so again, we get to like go back and I think these... I, you know, again, this is what I find really interesting about history is you can kind of go back to this time period, you can take your perceptions now and you could say like, okay... Uh, you know, the, the side that like I would probably side with now is not the one that Satoshi would have taken. And to me, that's interesting. But, you know, I think the fact is back mm. in the day, it's like there was really just this idea that Bitcoin was governed by the users. And that's what emerges. And I think when that emerges, that is when Satoshi seems to fade. Because I think once people kind of figure out that like, no, we're in control, we can fork, we can take responsibility if Satoshi goes rogue, uh, that is where the mental break happens, where I think the users are control. I don't think Gavin ever saw that as being what Bitcoin was. I think that he, you know, because uh, again, I think like Bitcoin is an interesting thing because it, it it does come from that open source lineage, and open source projects are typically managed in a certain way. They're typically it's there is a creator who runs it, or he transitions the project to someone who operates with that authority. Bitcoin is really rare in that it's a it's a it has had to evolve how open source development works in order to succeed on its value proposition. <laughs> because again, the fundamental question is how can Bitcoin be a decentralized money? if the developers are able to control things. I think Bitcoin has gotten to the best version of that answer over time, but I don't think Satoshi was able to solve that. That's why I sort of say it's like it's an inherent contradiction. A man invented a decentralized money. <laughs> like it's like it's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so you start with Bitcoin uh, being in a state where it's like it's a logically impossible mathematical problem. <laughs> like like is Bitcoin a decentralized currency at the point that Satoshi created it? It's like, how do you possibly answer that question? I think the answer is no, it's not. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it happened yeah, over time. That's a really interesting question. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see where you're going with that. I also I feel like a lot of it weighs heavily on Gavin. Uh, I've never spoken to Gavin apart from a, a couple of small email uh, exchanges where I've you know asked, "Can I have some of your time?" And it's he's always politely declined. He's always replied. Um, 
but there's something in the mm. in the few words. He's, yeah, he's very open. Yeah, but this and it's always a few words, but there's something in the few words that says to me there's something's weighing heavily on him, and uh, um, mm. you know he gets a lot of stick uh, from people, and some people are very critical of him. I've seen that. Uh, I at the same time, and I I know why. I know why they are, but I at the same time just like. Uh, as a person, I, I feel like it, something weighs heavily on him, and I kind of just hope he's okay. I think he's doing great. I mean, you know, he's as a he's got a family. He's got you know enough. You know, he's had he had plenty of Bitcoin from back in the day. I mean, you know, I think his reputation in Bitcoin, and I think that uh, you know, great as a person, right? But I think um, you know, I think he feels. I mean, certainly he doesn't agree with where Bitcoin. I went. thought he got rid of all his. He Bitcoin. knows that, right? Uh, I don't know, and I can't. I, I couldn't substantiate I that. that. I think that, that would that, only come from a blog post, but I'm sure I remember reading him saying, "I've got rid of the last of my Bitcoin." I could be wrong. That could be Mike Hearn, or I could be confusing people. Um, but I do hope he's okay. Yeah, Mike Hearn was the one who sold all his right, Bitcoin. Okay. I think. I think with Gavin, you know, he wanted Bitcoin to succeed. I think that Gavin, you know, the choices that he made that were were bad, I think, came much later. And again, I I think in this story, you know, I was really into scrutinizing that because again, people today. They sort of view Gavin as this, you know, oh, he went to the CIA. It must have been a political, you know, uh, spook who was like put in uh, charge of, of Bitcoin or whatever. I, I really think that Gavin was trying to do the best thing uh, for the project at the time. And I think the users chose Gavin. Like, I don't really right. think that Ga- it was Gavin abusing his authority or anything like that. It's that simply the users wanted something different than Satoshi and Gavin's willingness to do that. I mean, think about it. Gavin chose to write on the forum that he was going to the CIA. You don't think if that was something that people vastly disagreed with that he would still be in charge? Like, how could he? Have, how could he have still be in charge of Bitcoin? It's still Bitcoin. It still functions the same way. How could he have possibly mm-hmm. continued to be in charge if people really disagreed with it on that level? Uh, they would have forked the code. They would have done the thing that they said they would have done against Satoshi, right? So I think what you see is the developers are positive about it. They're saying this is great. We need more engagement. We need people to understand Bitcoin. Thank you for doing this. And, and, you know, really, I think Gavin, it's tough. You know, it's like, in many ways, he's like the guy, it's like they, Bitcoin's the baby left on his doorstep. And he raises the kid, you know, say what you will about Gavin. It's like, he didn't he didn't make the baby, but he raised the kid, right? He's the one who, he does this nice post where he's like, you know, uh, he gives this call to developers and he's like, your reward will be your recognition. Uh, we must come together. We must move forward, right? And I think Gavin's just the guy, he picked up the flag. You kind of think about it, it's like a war, you know, and somebody gets shot down. He's the next guy who carried the flag. You know, does that make him yeah, a lieutenant? Well, Maybe, but he's the <laughs> one who had the energy, you know? It's like the divorced parent who has to look after the child and the other one goes off with mythical status. <laughs> and you have to do all the bad decisions and all the bad and the tough parenting. Well, I think what is interesting to me is that I think there's an inherent duality there in that. And I think it's amazing how quickly like Satoshi became mythologized, like and just how mm-hmm. rapidly that process took place. Because if you think about it, like as I was saying by the summer of 2010, it's like people are emailing him and he's making fixes and he doesn't seem like a strange, mysterious guy. He's just another guy on the forum. Like, how would you know he's every di- he's even different? Everybody on the forum has a pseudonym, except for Gavin. So how would you know that Satoshi is some sort of a regular mysterious person? People thought that he was Japanese. They just assumed because like why not um you know so i think that uh you know uh it, it wasn't so cut and cut and dry right where he where he he appeared that way at first uh, it really wasn't until the mainstream kind of press come in in the early 2011 you know as gavin is coming kind of asserting that 
you know, they begin to ask, like, oh, hey, where's the guy who invented Bitcoin? I'll buy, that's great that you're in charge, but like, you know, who's the guy who did that? And that's where you really see the press articles. And Satoshi's last message to Gavin is, you know, stop referring to me as this mysterious shadowy person. But that was something that the mainstream press, you know, had had largely done at that point, right? They had, they had already kind of concocted in their their head this kind of myth of him as a shadowy founder. And I think what's interesting is Gavin, you know, he plays a role in popularizing this, I think, because he's available. His face is on the forum. He's talking to you. He looks like he could be your high school teacher. Uh, so I think Satoshi is kind of othered by Gavin. They just become... They're just very different people, right? Like you couldn't have mm. two more different people. Uh, even the first message from Satoshi to, uh, from Gavin to Satoshi is like, he's like, "Hey, how are you? How old are you? Like, did you go to school here? Like, I think Bitcoin's great. Like, I'd love to help you." You know, it's just like this very chipper, like can-do attitude. And I think in articulating his story and Gavin sort of explaining how he became leader of Bitcoin, he had to explain Satoshi's story. And I think what's interesting is Satoshi's story is kind of a product of Gavin's story. And so at the end of the article, I kind of go into that. I think the, the, the really, I think Gavin gets caught up in the mythology too. And I don't think he gets a lot of sympathy, but this idea that he was this like good-natured guy who was like Bitcoin's protector, who was Bitcoin's leader, this is kind of stuff that people, to an extent, like kind of, I think over time he played into it. And I think a lot of his bad decisions came when he played into that. But, you know, he's a victim of mythology, I think, in a lot of ways, the same ways that Satoshi is. Both of our caricatures of like how they were are, are, are pretty wrong. Next up, I talked to Rizzo more about the final days of Satoshi. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And today we're going to kick off with Gemini, who are my new exchange sponsor and who I am now exclusively using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But I ain't selling anything, right? Are you selling Bitcoin? I'm not selling Bitcoin. I'm buying it, though. What a dip we had this weekend. Did you buy some Bitcoin? Hope you did. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for this. I've been using it for buying dips, but I also set up my DCA for my twice monthly Bitcoin buys, and I'm yet to see a better app for buying Bitcoin. They've absolutely killed it. And I also want to say a massive thanks and shout out to Cameron and Tyler for supporting the show. I've been super impressed with how much they want to help and support Bitcoin. They are sponsoring devs and Bitcoin projects, and they've said it's an open book. Pete, if you've got any ideas, you've got any feedback, come and talk to us. We want to hear from it. So I am very much enjoying working with the Gemini team. I'm looking forward to everything we do together. And if you want to check Gemini out, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Next up today, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a number of very cool products for Bitcoiners. So with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. And I have been a customer there for nearly two years. I am letting my Bitcoin work for me. And with a Bitcoin-backed loan, you can also borrow Bitcoin without selling. And you can also now register for a BlockFi credit card, which launches imminently, offering 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases. If you are interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And lastly, this week, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet, now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. I have been a Ledger user since early 2017, and I am still using the Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it so easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. Also, if you are an Android phone user, you can connect your Nano S to your phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. There's another mythology that I'm intrigued by, and I get myself in trouble talking about this. 
But I also, and I think you and I are aligned on this, I also think there's some mythology around the original vision. And I have, God, I'm going to get some shit for this, I know, but I have certain sympathies towards people who were into the idea of Big Up Rocks. I have certain sympathies, not for uh, BSV people, but for Bcash people, I have some certain sympathies for them because from everything I can see from the early days, I read the, I've read the white paper, I've seen some of the earlier messages, I've seen some of the discussions around transaction volume. Like I, I think I could see how uh, it would be very easy to be on the wrong side of the block size debate. It wasn't very clear that this was going to become digital gold. Now I'm with you. I think we've got the bit, right Bitcoin now. I think we've got the Bitcoin we need and deserve. But I can see how I can see how you can get on the wrong side of history very easily uh, in the block size debate because because of the vagueness around digital gold or digital payments. I mean, to me, it's very clear early on that there is conversation about this being money, this being decentralized money. And then other people say, well, gold is money. But I, I, when I say money, I'm not talking about like anything that's tradable. I was like, it feels like this is meant to be money that you can use for any kind of transaction. And I think there's a certain mythology around that as well. Am I wrong or do you, do you get similar feelings? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence for either argument. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the continued combativeness yeah. around this that you would, right? So just the mere fact that there's continued uh, controversy, I think, really would tell you a lot about the situation. I think, you know, as I look at it, I think it is very clear that Satoshi did see Bitcoin as a decentralized money and an alternative to central banking, and that he's very forward in seeing Bitcoin as those two things. So especially in the white paper, and then in his first kind of, uh, you know, this article goes into this too, the first time he goes to evangelize it is for on the P2P Foundation website. He really does talk about Bitcoin as an alternative to central banking, as an alternative to the trust that was required in those systems. I think that Again, and this is why I raised it earlier, I think you have to deal with the question of Satoshi the innovator, the Satoshi, the, the person who needed to kind of foster and build the community. Um, and this is where I, I, I sort of wonder, and I, I guess the only thing I could really add here is I think, um, I, as, as what I was saying, like, you know, where you think about him launching the forums and you think about that not being like, you know, something uh, like you would think of as an afterthought, but was actually very important. I think it's unclear to me what Satoshi was willing to do to get people interested in Bitcoin. So one of the things that I found, and this is going to seem kind of insane, but like I actually did this process. So I actually went through the Bitcoin.org website and I compared every version. So I like looked at like every like existing version we have of the website saved and like version by version how it changed. Uh, and it is true that during Satoshi's time as project leader, there was a, a portion of the website about the advantages of Bitcoin in which it was said that Bitcoin was, you know, for free or low cost payments that were cheaper than credit cards. And so I think that like either Satoshi would have had to have put that there or someone else would have to put that there with Satoshi's agreement because it's very, it's, it there would have been only a handful of people who had had the ability to update that website. Uh, so it's clear to me, and this is the way I would phrase it, he was tacitly involved in promoting the project in certain ways. And, you know, ultimately, you can only draw conclusions of that. Like, I, I don't think, uh, I do think, again, early on, that he was very clear that, that this was something that was an alternative central banking and base problems with money. I think the question then becomes sort of like, what was he willing to do to keep users involved? Like, even the, if you think about it, like with the idea, because uh, there's a quote in the article where he says, um, 
you know, I think, uh, so Jeff Garzik is a guy who I think gets, uh, you know, a lot of uh, of flack as well with Gavin. And I think one of the interesting things, if you look at Garzik's post, and I kind of went through his history of of his time, is that he codes a few patches uh, because he's a a traditional open source guy, right? So he's like, okay, well, if I want an answer to something, I'm going to code a patch and see what the maintainer says. Uh, So he codes a patch that's basically saying every transaction should have a fee. So Jeff Garzik, writes a patch, and he says every transaction should have a fee. And so what Satoshi says is he says, I think some transactions should always be free. So Garzik has kind of, as this guy who read the white paper, he's like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're minting Bitcoins, and in the future, Bitcoin is going to be supported by fees. I'm going to say, uh, make the statement, and I'm going to say all transactions should have fees. And then the founder comes back to you and says, no, I think that some transactions should be free always. Uh, like, how do you move forward for that? Like, because you've asked the question, um, and you've gotten your answer, and your answer is kind of contradictory, right? Like, I, I think in that instance, Jeff Garzik was playing the role of like, most people feel that all Bitcoin transactions should have fees. Why? Because we need Bitcoin to work like with a fee market, because that's how it will work in the future. Uh, but, you know, that's not the standpoint that Satoshi took on it. Um, so, again, like, these people were real people who had to move forward and they had to, like, you know, make decisions based on past data. Um, I think what is clear is that the other developers over time, you know, became more assertive in, in thinking of the project as a scientific uh, project that had to meet certain standards, meet certain definitions, and that they really, and this is, again, I would pull that quote from Vladimir, uh, they really started to think that the project needed to be decentralized, and they were willing in, in, to push that as the, not push that, but they adopted that as the North Star, right? That became the thing mm-hmm. that in order, in order to resolve this contradiction where Bitcoin was a, originally this centralized, decentralized money, you had to actually figure out what it meant for that money to be decentralized. I think the people who ended up on the smaller block side or the kind of Bitcoin as gold or uh, that, that sort of camp, I think they thought longer and harder about what that meant. I think some of the people on the other side of that if anything, I think you can fault Jeff and Gavin for being a little bit too deferential to Satoshi and his inconsistencies. Uh, because again, I think like Satoshi isn't so clear, and I think maybe he was willing to do stuff to get us to be interested. And I don't think that makes him a bad guy either. I think that makes him a guy who started a project uh, who that got successful. Uh, he needed to please everybody, and that's for a while what he did uh, because he just you know, that was the solution that worked for him. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at these things with retrospect and and and, and see what the right decision right. was. And and I do think we have the Bitcoin we deserve and I do think we have the right Bitcoin. But, you know, I spent some time when I first, because when I first properly got involved, it was during the block size debate of so 2017 uh-huh. and you're in and you're like, what the fuck? Well, that kind of makes sense for you because, you know, but really, you know, it's it's years of work, years of understand, I mean, and I'm very at the basic level, but understanding the tech, understanding the economics takes you there. And I, I do have a certain amount of sympathy. I don't have sympathy now, like by now, you should know. It should, it, I think it's kind of obvious the, the market's spoken, but I think that's more about saving face. Um, there, there is a thing where like Satoshi perhaps reappeared in during the block size debate. There is that one, uh, e, that one message yeah. Is it we 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 are all Satoshi? Uh, well, there's the one from Dorian. Uh, there's the one from Dorian, like when he says, "I am not Dorian Nakamoto." Or uh, what happens is an old e- yeah. an email address of Satoshi says, "I am not Dorian." He did the same thing during the block size words. Uh, what do you thought? 
I mean, I think it almost doesn't matter at a certain point. Again, I think it's one of those, I I view that as sort of like, uh, you know what, J.K. Rowling, where she went back and said that Dumbledore was gay? It's like, it's either in the text or it's not. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, if Dumbledore was gay, like then you should have put it in the book. Like you missed your opportunity. So I think like, you know, any post-Satoshi comments, I think like the last message that he sent to Gavin uh, and the other guys, like, to me, that's his last message because I don't think you can prove any Satoshi going forward as Satoshi. I don't think we need any other person to be Satoshi. We certainly don't need a leader now. Um, you know, I, I think really what I wanted to get out of this article again, like, wasn't who was Satoshi? Wasn't like what are his opinions? Like, what did he think about things? I wanted to understand what he went through and what early users thought about authority, what they thought about governance, and like how they thought Bitcoin should be managed. I think honestly, I was surprised by just. Uh, you know, Pierre Richard, I think when he wrote it, he said, he sent back to me, uh, when, when he read it, he wrote back to me, he said, uh, TIL, he's like, toxic Bitcoiners drove out Satoshi. And I was like, I love that. I was like, that's a great way to look at this, where uh, the users just asserted authority. And, you know, at a certain point, like the users didn't need Satoshi and Satoshi had to step aside. And I think, you know, I think the article, like, you know, it, it really builds kind of over time. And then by the end, I think like there's a velocity of events that are happening and you kind of see it's like, how could how could a Satoshi figure ever solve this for us? Like one of the interesting events yeah. that I go into is this thing called BitDNS. Um, so this guy uh, named Matthew Willis, he basically uh, you know wrote a pu- like blog post that was basically about, hey, can we have other blockchains? Like that's you know, and we just live in this world now where there's many cryptocurrencies and blockchains, but you know that just blew people's minds, right? And people all of a sudden they're looking to Satoshi, you know, dear Satoshi, like what should we do? And this is really where Satoshi comes up with the definite with merge mining, which really just becomes the side chains idea later. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really just interesting. Like how how could Satoshi solve that? Like is it is there any version of reality where Satoshi uh, can tell you how or whether we should have many cryptocurrencies? Uh, I don't know. What would a Satoshi say about that? And would you care what the Satoshi said anyway? Uh, and the answer is like people just didn't. They didn't. There's one. There's one question I'm not going to ask you. Well, you, you know what that question is? Um, what is that? Which is the question everyone will want to ask you once once they've read it. What's that? Who is Satoshi? Um, I'm not gonna. <laughs> yeah. I don't want you to answer it, even if you did. I don't um, think I know any more um, than anyone else. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I'm I'm in that place. Like any attempt to dox Satoshi is disrespectful and it's wrong. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I've had over the years, I've had you know a small handful of people who've gotten in touch because they're making films or they're doing something and like this finding Satoshi or whatever. And I'm always like, no, I don't want to be involved. Leave it alone. It's the right answer. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is it is the right answer. But like the mystery is never gonna win. Um but one thing I would ask you, are there any any people you you would say it specifically isn't that you got from that? I don't think you can ever say that anybody isn't Satoshi, right? I mean I I think that you know, I would say first, this this piece is like specifically not about who Satoshi is. I don't personally mm-hmm. think I want to know who Satoshi is. I don't think we need to know who Satoshi is. I think Bitcoin has evolved past Satoshi uh, in pretty much every way, right? I think it's interesting to think that, you know, he did leave this legacy. He had he did have this impact in a lot of ways. Bitcoin has evolved beyond maybe what he even really thought, you know, was possible or how things should be. And I and I think that's great. Um, and that's not really where my intent, um, you know, comes from. I think, you know, maybe to just kind of uh, talk about why it's like I can do some work like this and not be interested in who Satoshi is, right, or even who he might be. I think that, you know, 
all we can do is look at what happened in Bitcoin, right? And we live in a world of Bitcoin right now where we, we don't need a Satoshi. We don't need that authority figure. I don't know what we gain from that. Um, you know, certainly I would say it's probably unlikely that, you know, the pe- major people who corresponded with him, you know, you could probably rule out anyone on those forums who, uh, you know, interacted with him. But look, there were people at the time who even thought that, you know, maybe Satoshi was just coming back as Gavin Andreessen, that Gavin Andreessen was the guy hmm. who had, you know, founded the project. And it wasn't so out of the realm of possibility that, like, he was doxing himself, right? Because why not? If but he, every theory is, you know, every theory is possible. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that just everyone had those theories, right? I think that, you know, uh, Satoshi is just really, he, he became a myth and a legend in his own time, right? Um, and I think that, you know, if anything, the article really just gets across that, you know, who is in charge of Bitcoin? It's always been the users. Uh, and to an extent, you know, Satoshi's authority was almost like a problem to be solved. It was the inherent riddle initially with Bitcoin is that how do you have a decentralized money where there's a there's a guy who can really just kind of put anything he wants in the code and did. Like he, he did act that way. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I find that uh, in my studies of Satoshi, what I'm looking for is like, I want to understand where this notion of Bitcoin governance came from, how theories about how Bitcoin work, like how it worked happened, right? And how those evolved. Um, you know, there's this one funny exchange that I found that I really loved. Uh, and it was basically just these uh, guys on this IRC forum. And they're just talking about just, you know, uh, how, how could you be comfortable with some random guy picking the money supply, right? And this is back and forth. And this is like 2010, right? And there's this one guy who's like, well, I accept Satoshi's cap more than I do Bernanke's, right? And, and I think that's interesting to me because it shows that like, as Bitcoin thought evolved, there were already people then who saw the value proposition the way that it's articulated today. The other quote from that paragraph was this guy who's basically like, the only important part is that it's fixed and forced by all peers and known to everyone in advance. Right. So even then, like people were sort of grappling with these essential questions where it's like, yeah, did Satoshi ordain a 21 million limit? Yes. Did it matter? Uh, no. And it didn't matter to users then the same way it doesn't matter to us now. And I think, um, I don't know. I love little moments like that where you go back and you're like, wow, like who would you have, have to have been in 2010 to understand Bitcoin at that level? Like you would have had to like really understand Bitcoin. And to me, that's more fascinating than Satoshi because again, you know, Bitcoin is this, this, you know, egalitarian decentralized project. And, uh, you know, in many ways, like, uh, it's great to see users express this understanding of Bitcoin because I think that is what the technology ultimately is at the end of the day, right? It's a consensus technology. Um, and the consensus today is it's decentralized money. And it's quite incredible still that it works. Yeah. When you think about it, it's a, uh, there's a great meme I saw the other day where it's a, it's a you may have seen it, where it's the dad, he's come to the, uh, the, the his son's uh, bedroom door and he's a stick drawing of a dad with a hat on saying, oh, yeah, what are you up to, son? son. <laughs> he went son, that's it. And the son says, yes, I'm rebuilding the global financial system with my friends. <laughs> And I just thought, well, the funny thing about that, it, it, it kind of, that is actually happening. Yeah. And key parts of the network are Raspberry Pis right. sat in people's <laughs> lounge right. or in their, in their office. Yeah. And key parts of the network are a bunch of miners within a crate right. in <laughs> Africa mm-hmm. or South America. Like that is the financial system. It seems like it, it's almost like, this hodgepodge of technologies that all been kind of stuck together. It doesn't seem like it should work, 
but it does, and it's brilliant in design and the way it works. Mm. But it, but it, it it seems both ele- elegant and clunky at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, yeah, the majesty of Bitcoin, I think, is something that, like, I mean, it, I, my, it only grows for me, like, over time. Um, you know, I was saying this in a, in a clubhouse chat recently, and it's like something that dawned on me recently, just on my morning run. I was like, I was like, wow, Bitcoin is like a deep structural critique of like human life. <laughs> like, is there like if you think about it in those terms, right? It's like like if you were a guy, and it's like you were like your stamp on the world. Uh, like like Bitcoin really just cuts to the root of like you know just like all these problems, systemic problems like consumerism, <laughs> like a co- economic mm. management, like you know life in the twenty first century, and it's like you made Bitcoin, right? And like what a deep like structural critique like even eight years later or ten like for me personally but like even you know 12 years later for, for the ecosystem as a whole it's like you know you're still grappling like with understanding what it is and and just uh you know what a contradiction it is in so many ways uh and and how amazing it is that it's still there right um and and you know i guess in the context of this article that you know uh this is all continued for 10 years without you know anyone to lead it right like there's there is no ben bernanke you know, as that guy said in the mm. chat, right? There is no person at the dial. Um, but I do think that great people contributed, right? I think like when we look back at the past of Bitcoin, we're going to find that while Bitcoin is a decentralized technology, it's like our understanding of the philosophy and the technology was like highly shaped by individuals. And I think that comes out in a few moments in this piece where you really do get to see those early people, whether it's Vlad van der Laan or like a Thamos, like they come in and their contribution is, no, like they got Bitcoin, they understood it. And they were able to articulate it, and uh, in real time. And even if that meant going against Satoshi or disagreeing with him, like you know, sometimes they were willing to do that. And I think that's super cool because I think, um, you know, I think the big thing driving my work these days is, you know, I said at the beginning here, it's just like if Bitcoin is an invention, like we need to preserve as much of it and our understanding of it. And I think. Um, what we're going to find is that, like, you know, probably like, you know, a, a handful of like, you know, maybe five to 20 people, you know, the same thing with like what we saw with democracy, right? When that happened, the, you know, that was something that came from humans, like the you know, people argued, fought, developed a thing. Uh, we're probably going to find that, like, you know, there were a few uh, people there who were highly influential and in, in shaping our thinking about it. Um, you know, I'm not even sure if Satoshi's like in the top. And like, if you were to do a top ten, you know, <laughs> you know where he gets there finally. And I, and I think the other thing is clear is that like Satoshi kind of left an unfinished product because uh, in order for it to be finished, like it had to solve the riddle of him, right? Like, it, like how do you replace the guy in charge? Uh, and there was no way that he could have done that, right? Like, uh, so I think it, like Bitcoin is just. Yeah, interesting in so many ways, but uh, yeah, I get back to that inherent contradiction of Satoshi, which is you're the man who invented a decentralized money. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> has, it, has it has it changed you or your conviction with Bitcoin? Because you may say I was wrong, but and it may be diff- because of different reasons. But when we when I did the interview in 2019, mm. I, I thought you were a little bit cynical or maybe disillusioned a bit yeah. with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I, I found like and to hear. To have this conversation now, I think you're in a very different space with it. Are they fair observations? Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that. I think my disillusionment at that time was not with Bitcoin. I think I was at the beginning of like really accepting like Bitcoin maximalism or just you know the idea that Bitcoin was the only thing that I should be working on. I think what I was really disillusioned with at that time specifically was just a few things. It was the you know that was coming out of the ICO boom. It was like the decentralized yeah. cryptocurrency mania of everything's an innovation, and I think also just the news cycle in general. I think. 
you know, I think we've seen this now. It's like the mainstream media uh, and even the crypto media, I think at large has adopted the standpoint that I don't think is really quite accurate, right? I think the, from the standpoint of most crypto media and mainstream media, it's like, these are all stocks. These are all bonds. Oh, here's the news cryptos and the Dogecoin goes up and the Bitcoin goes down and the Elon Musk with the tweets, like, mm. you know, and it just, I think my disillusionment then was just realizing the extent of the system, like that there was no, there was no great way to like build that kind of model, right? Because I started as somebody who was like interested in media, and you know maybe that was something that I was interested in like a little bit more than Bitcoin, uh, at least maybe initially. And I think that I don't know. I just when I saw the mechanics of that system and just that there just didn't seem to be a good way to do it, right? And I didn't know what the solution to that was. And I think um, you know after putting so much work into something like you know. Uh, the prior publication I was at, and then just seeing like it come to those natural points where you're like, oh, okay, I don't know if this is this isn't the thing that I want to be known for. Like, I don't want to be a, like I don't want to have this like be the thing that I that I did and I contributed because I don't think there's a way to do it right. I mean, um, you know, that was hard, right? That was like that was a hard realization, and I think um, yeah, you maybe caught me at the beginning of that, but I think. Um, yeah, my appreciation for Bitcoin, I think, has only deepened since then because, um, mm. you know, I had to really sit and think about what what mattered to me and where I could add value, right? I kind of got spat out the other end of, okay, yeah, there is no way to fix the media, like the way and the way that it works with Bitcoin. There's no way to have even like a, you know, though I do think Bitcoin Magazine has done a great job of being more of evangelist, right? Yeah. And being more uh, Bitcoin focused. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. But I think that, you know, some of these larger publications and things, it's like, you know, they're still, and that's why when, you know, we were talking before this recording about just super cycles and how fast things are going to take. I mean, you look at, you know, one of the biggest frustrations, I think, you know, and seeing so many people come through crypto journalism or Bitcoin journalism or whatever, is just like, you know, if you treat it as a job, it's like, it's just the thing you do when you log online. It's a silly thing. And I think, if there's anything that I've got to from there, it's a, it's a real appreciation that like, okay, Bitcoin is a real thing. This is going to have an impact on the world. Not only that, it's a historic impact on the world. This is going to be one of the few things when, you know, uh, it's the year 3040 and they fast forward through the history of the world. It's like the wheel, the fire, and Bitcoin, right? It like might, when all is said and done, like of this whole time period where we lived, like Bitcoin might be the one thing that remains in the sentence. It, it is that important when you understand mm. it really what it is. And I think my disillusionment at the time was like I didn't know if I could contribute to that anymore. This is something I talked to with like Marty Bent. I was on his podcast not too long ago, and it's just I think that everyone within Bitcoin, like Bitcoin, is this immense thing. You know, Nick Carter, the cathedral that we're all building. Uh, I think uh, us individual people who are contributing also have to kind of take stock with it sometimes and say, you know, okay, what am I contributing to this thing? Am I putting my time and personal energies in the right way? Uh, towards preserving this. Um, and I think that was the gut check that I got. And I came out of it saying, you know, look, if I am somebody who's who's going to, you know, chase these questions down to the end, if I'm the guy who's going to go through every Satoshi post and, and help people understand, <laughs> you know, what it is that, uh, you know, what it is that he did and like you know, how, how he managed the project, um, you know, that's the road that I'm going to take. And, you know, uh, if it's a book, if it's periodic articles, like I just want to, I want to get closer to the understanding of what of what this thing is, uh, because that's the time horizon that I'm operating in now. And really, it's so freeing, like compared to the news cycle, uh, compared to thinking about the next day. Uh, you know, again, is Doge going up? Is Elon selling? Whatever. I mean, I can't tell you uh, how little I care about the cryptocurrency news these days, <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. and and how amazing that is. I, I just, you know. 
absolutely could not care less whether major, uh, ma- another major bank adopts Bitcoin. Zero interest. Uh, you know, again, because if you know that it's going to, if you see it and you get it, rest is noise, you know? Listen, if there was one person to produce the kind of definitive chronicles of Bitcoin, I think you're you're the person for it. Um, Thanks, man. You know I love your work. And uh, uh, I like hanging out with you. Hopefully I'm going to see you at some point this year. Are you going to be in Miami? Miami, of course, yeah. Going to have me well, on, on the will... stage, man in the dunk tank. Well, I'll be, I'll be the one probably bringing you on stage then. But but I, I, I look, your work's brilliant, man. Your work is brilliant. You know what I think of it. Um, Thanks, man. Appreciate I, uh, I, I appreciate everything you're doing. I'm glad you've uh, uh, freed yourself of those shackles to do this because it's it is important work, and um, you are you're putting a marker in time to like document the history of what happens here. And I, I'll be interested to see how this is batched up at the end. Uh, because a disparate set of articles is one thing, a real kind of chronology of important Bitcoin information yeah. itself is, is important. I, I'm, I, I think you have a book in you, and this probably all leads towards a book, which is great. I think and so I, too. I, I just think I that I didn't want to come to it with any preconceptions. And I think the more that I tried to you approach to. doing something, like I always found that I was like, okay, I don't know this, and I have to go back. And I, and I think for me, that pushed me further back into the timeline of Bitcoin. Because I think like, and this is, you know, not to critique any specific works, but I think there's been some recent attempts to do some like kind of larger historical kind of looks at, at things that have happened in Bitcoin. And I just think that they're, they oftentimes, I think there's too much of a lens of the now. And really what I wanted to do with this article specifically is like, you know, you, you've got to strip all lens that out. Lens of the time. You actually have to strip that out. Like you, mm. and again, this goes to my like current thing right now. It's like everybody's a fucking macro analyst all of a sudden. Everybody knows now how imports and exports work in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> like you can give me like some deep. Everyone knows deep. how bond yields work. Oh yeah, dude. It's a whole, everybody, like everybody is a, everybody is a global macro economist, like, you know, the, reventing the, the central bank. And look, I, I think that's great. And that's where we are now in Bitcoin. Bitcoin, totally understand. Uh, I think you guys are doing great work. But I think for me, it's like, you know, just seeing so many versions of the of Bitcoin kind of emerge. It's like, I'm not convinced that we have the best version of Bitcoin now or the most correct. Like, uh, you know, this idea that we're, you know, we have a super cycle, this idea that Bitcoin is an asset and it's mainstreaming as an asset. And prior definitions of Bitcoin were not as correct as the, uh, as the you know, definition we have now. And I think like, if there's a benefit and the thing that I'm trying to not lose is just being outside of that. I don't, I don't really want to kind of fit into the, I've seen so many of those things dissipate before. And look, I mean, Bitcoin's still a payment method. It is still a, a, a platform for applications. It is still all these things. Uh, you may want to call it a macro as- asset or a macro hedge or gold 2.0, whatever. I think we're, I think the legacy of Bitcoin is going to be that humans are going to continue to try to b- put Bitcoin in boxes and Bitcoin is going to continue to break out of those boxes. Uh, and I think, you know... It's kind of organic, really, isn't right. it? Like, it's like the push and the pull of every person, narrative, coder, regulator, like every single touch point into Bitcoin or outside of Bitcoin, it kind of pushes it, it kind of finds where it needs to go. It's a bit like, I don't know, it's a bit like water, it just flows where it needs to go. Yeah, there's a great quote I love from this from like Douglas Adams, like who talks about the early internet. And he's like, first we thought it was a calculator, and he's like, then we thought it was a typewriter, and then it's like with World Wide Web, we realized it's a brochure. And I think like, you know, what that means to me is like it's like human language is a natural like constraint on Bitcoin, right? Like we want to verbalize what Bitcoin is, and in our act of articulating what Bitcoin is, we're putting 
shackles on it with our like feeble human minds, right? We're we're trying to like uh, quantify this thing that just can't be quantified. And at every stand, every point where we try to do that, uh, it's going to break out of that box. So I mean, look, I, I, for me, I think um, you know I'm glad that you find the work interesting. I would hope people check it out. I mean, Bitcoin Magazine, uh, Last Days of Satoshi. I'll uh, be doing a, some live streaming there on Wednesday, so that would be the 28th. That's on the. Uh, uh, anniversary of the old Satoshi Disappear Day, which uh, the Bitcoin users declared at the at the point that he disappeared. Uh, so we have an Adam back on to chat a little bit about the legacy of Satoshi, uh, Jameson Lott, Pierre Richard, uh, you know, also the Bitcoin Magazine folks, Matt O'Dell, Christian Corollis, and the great team over there. So you know, we'll be streaming some content, and yeah, appreciate appreciate the chat, man. Yeah, man. Well, what's next? Do you know what you're going to attack next? I have a couple inclinations. To be honest, I think I'm going to take a little bit of a breather after this one. I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the last two, because I did the first Bitcoin war, which was kind of like after yeah. Satoshi uh, left, uh, you know, when really I think that I've got 2009 to 2012 kind of mapped out in my head. You know, I feel like I've really kind of gone through the bins and like <laughs> I've gotten everything that I wanted out of those periods. I think the best thing I can say is like I don't have any more questions about this period, right? And I think for me, as someone who wants to understand Bitcoin, uh, the best that I can do, and I hope other people in evaluating work, it's like I think I've just I've tried everything, right? I've tried to talk to the people who are there. I've read the forum posts, I've read the IRC logs, I've spent time with it. Um, you know, maybe people are going to disagree with some of my conclusions. I'd, I'd love to have those conversations. Um, I think for me, it was just you know, again, uh, as soon as you realize that historical importance, as soon as you realize like that that level, it's like. Well, you have to go through every box. You have to look at everything that's in the junk drawer and see what might be there. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, even for the hardened old timers, I mean, Gavin Andreessen read this and he was like, even I learned some new things. And for me, that's awesome. Uh, if, I can, if I can teach somebody who was there uh, a bit more than he knew, um, then I feel like I've done the best that I can for Bitcoin, right? Like that I've, mm. that, that my work judged against what Bitcoin is. I feel like I've done enough, and and to me, that's the standard that I want my work to be at going forward. I don't, whether it's a you know book or movie or whatever, uh, my standard is I would like the work that I that I've done to contribute to Bitcoin, and then when you value it against it, it's you know comparable, maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, listen, dude, I love your work. Honestly, I, I always have. Um, so this is probably going to come out on the day of the release, ish. Yeah. Uh, so just tell people where to find the article. Yeah, Bitcoin, I mean, we will link it in the show notes. Yeah, BitcoinMagazine.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore. Uh, any additional underscores, and you might have a scammer. But yeah, you know, again, would love any feedback. And uh, to people who might be reading, um, you know, I hope this gives you like a new perspective on the early days of Bitcoin. And I hope uh, it encourages you to continue learning about Bitcoin because I think, you know, that's why we're all here. So. All right, man. Well, listen, keep crushing it. As you know, you've got an open invite on the show anytime Just you want to come crash. on. And I th- yeah, well, I think, I, you know, I think we should do, I th- I, you know, we people won't know. We were talking probably for half an hour before we started mm. just shooting the shit about Bitcoin. There's some interesting conversations there. So let's do that one soon as well because it'll be good to catch up with you. And yeah. also I look forward to seeing you in Miami and, and grabbing a beer, dude. Happy to do it, man. Be a good time. Appreciate it. Come on. How freaking good was that? Amazing work. Mr. Rizzo. As as I said in the intro, I'm very lucky to build these episodes as these interviews are built on the great work of others. Perhaps work that has been days put into this, weeks or even months of research has happened in the background and then I just get to sit down and talk to them about it. So I am very fortunate. I'm fully aware of that and I always want to make sure people don't just listen to the interviews. They actually go and check out the work itself. 
Uh, so please do jump into the show notes. Do go and read the full article by Rizzo because it's, well, let's be honest, it's really fucking good. So I love this episode, hearing about these old conversations and the way Satoshi transitioned out of Bitcoin. And I'm really hoping that Pete has a few more deep dives like this up his sleeve. I love this sort of work. It'd be good to talk to him again. I need to get Pete back on the show. You know, funny thing was, even before we recorded, we just started chatting and we ended up doing about a 30, 30 minute, 45 minute conversation before the interview about other Bitcoin stuff. And uh, we should have recorded that because that would have been another cracking episode. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one. If you do want to reach out and get in touch, you can jump into my Telegram group or you can always reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. I know you prefer my show from Pomp, so make sure you say that. It's very important. I stay above Pomp in the rankings. Pomp agrees, but, you know, let's just make sure that happens. All right, have a great rest of your week, and I will see you all later. Later.